Hello, welcome to the SOS Podcast. Despite promising a return to normality after last month's rather fleeting messer roundup, we've got something a little different again. Paul White, our esteemed editor-in-chief, is on holiday in Turkey. So, we'll try and get hold of Paul. Can you hear me? Indeed I can, Chris, and to make it more fun, he, Rob Johns, our technical editor, is at home in Worcestershire, and I guess you're at SOS HQ in Cambridge. But we wouldn't leave you without a podcast, so let's crack on with this. The first Sound on Sound remote studio podcast. So I'm sitting on my balcony of my hotel in Turkey watching the sun go down over the rock tombs. And what a hot day it's been, but enough of that. Hello, it's Hugh here, coming to you from a hay fever-infested Worcestershire. Coming up, we have some Q&A from the SOS vaults of previous podcast recordings that you'll not have heard yet. Also, I'll be telling you why the Audio Engineering Associates A440 microphone really is worth its six grand price tag. But first, over to Chris for some news. News. I don't often use the word plethora, but I feel I must on this occasion to describe the number of new mics that Shaw have released. There are seven newcomers in total, including five large diaphragm condensers, two of which have A to D and D to A converters built in. So they've got USB outputs and a headphone socket for monitoring, which is a bit of a strange concept. The other two mics are the SM137, a small diaphragm condenser designed for use on instruments, and the Super 55, a reincarnation of the classic 55SH. Head to shaw.com for more. M-Audio have launched a new series of active studio monitors, the CX range. Available in 5 and 8 inch models, M-Audio say that the CX series should be able to work well in any production space. Prices start at £309 or $400 per monitor and for more information visit the M-Audio website. Akai have launched the Miniac, a portable virtual analogue synth. It's got a 25-note keyboard with over 600 presets as well as a built-in vocoder and gooseneck mic. Visit Akai Pro for further details. The Red Bull Music Academy is coming to London. Every year, the Academy sets up in a different city around the world and puts on a series of seminars, workshops and performances to help up-and-coming stars to get experience in their fields. So, they're inviting musicians, producers and DJs to apply to attend the Academy, which will take place at the beginning of 2010. If you want to get involved, head to redbullmusicacademy.com. Finally, Sibelius have launched version 6 of their popular scoring programme. We dispatched SOS Features Editor Sam Ingalls to find out more. Uh, so I'm in uh, Sibelius's Finsbury Park headquarters uh, with Daniel Sprobry. He's going to explain uh, some of the new features that are coming up in Sibelius 6. Daniel. Thanks, Sam. Um, so Sibelius 6 is a major new version of Sibelius, our best-selling music notation software. It's been two years in the making. Uh, we're delighted to say that it's available now, um, and it contains lots of new features, some that we've been asked for by our customers and some that we've dreamed up ourselves, as usual. Uh, the main uh, new feature, I think, the one that people will be most excited about, is something called Magnetic Layout. And magnetic Layout is an automatic collision avoidance system for all of the objects in your score. So as you type your music into Sibelius, all the things that, are, that sort of naturally sort of lie around the staves, things like dynamics, slurs, hairpins, chord symbols, rehearsal marks, all those lovely things, they quietly shift around and they're attracted uh, magnetically into rows and columns across and down the page, with the result that you end up with a score layout that's exactly what a publisher would do, or very close at least, um, and great for printing out and handing out to musicians. Uh, and in the test that we've done and the people we've asked about it, they tell us that it actually saves up to half of the editing time of putting a score together. Cool. Um, it does seem that, from what you've shown me, um, time saving and ergonomics are really the, 
the driving force behind the new version of Sibelius. So um, what other features have you got that help to fulfil that? Absolutely, yeah. Workflow and making things as simple and fast as possible are complete touchstones of our of our design philosophy. Um, I think that we've, we've tried to do that across the board. Um, for example, chord symbols is another great example. We've uh, revamped the way that chord symbols work in Sibelius. They used to be slightly fiddly to inputs in the kind of text form. You'd have to sort of tell Sibelius what input a chord and then right-click and choose the bits you wanted from a menu. As of Sibelius 6, you can just pr- play your MIDI keyboard, play the chord you want. It goes straight into the score. There's all sorts of great options for controlling how they appear. Um, you can make guitar chord diagrams appear and disappear um, as part of the same object. So that's a great example. We've done loads of work on playback to make that really simple. Um, obviously, we supported uh, all VST and audio unit instruments in Sibelius 5, and all that great stuff is still in Sibelius 6. But we've also been able to uh, use some of the technology from our sister company, Air, who's part of the Avid family, to provide a great built-in sampler um, that's right in the heart of Sibelius that has uh, no UI to get in the way and it does great things like load all the sounds in the background so you don't ever even see it loading sounds Um, you can control everything from the mixer um, and it's really very simple to set up and sounds really good it's got some really lovely effects and we've expanded the library that we include and that's really another case where we want our our users to be able to get right down to making music and not worry about uh, how it's going to perform so it just reads all the markings in the score uh, and just goes right from there and another interesting possibility that you mentioned to me earlier is um, real-time tempo mapping, where you can actually control Sibelius's tempo by tapping on a MIDI controller or on the QWERTY keyboard. And you've suggested that this might even be useful for conducting a Sibelius-led performance in real time. Absolutely, yes. There's a feature called Live Tempo, um, and as you allude to, it's a tap tempo feature. Um, unlike other tap tempo features that exist in other software, we actually wanted to make Sibelius respond to you the same way that a real ensemble does. So you don't have to mark up the score in advance. You can just start tapping, as you say, on a MIDI controller, on your QWERTY keyboard, or even a MIDI foot pedal if you have one. And Sibelius will just respond to you and understand you know, when you're subdividing, when you're going one in a bar, and so on. It will do that. Um, you can actually adjust the sensitivity of how how sort of seriously Sibelius takes your speeding up and slowing down. So if you wanted to use Sibelius in a live performance situation, you could set it to be quite smooth, and then you could actually kind of get it going. So you can imagine that even a, you know, a music director playing from a, from a keys part normally in, in a band might actually play Sibelius instead, playing multiple instruments uh, to augment whatever instruments exist. And you could even use it for teacher conducting, having you know, one student conducting and another person driving Sibelius to play back you know, even an entire orchestra uh, and have them sort of interpret what the person is doing in real time great another feature that looks pretty cool um, is something we've seen before in word processors and graphics desktop publishing packages which is version handling yeah, so we, we wanted to make it really easy. Uh, we went out and talked to a lot of customers and found that they had developed their own kind of workflows for how to make sure they knew what the latest version of a project they were working on was and what the differences were. And particularly important when you're collaborating with whether it's an, an orchestrator because you're working on a film score or a publisher if you're a composer or even if you're a teacher and a student, um, you often need to exchange files back and forth and need to keep track of what you're doing. And even if you're working on your own, frankly, you know, I speak to people who have elaborate systems of folders for each 
project and named scores and all the rest of it. I wanted to take all of that work out. So now, in Sibelius 6, you can actually save different versions of the score within the same file. So we already have all of our instrumental parts saved in the file, and now you can save entire versions of the score at any point in the file. You can switch between them with a single uh, toolbar menu, so you can see these different versions, and they all show up on uh, crumpled paper to show that they're the old version. Um, and you can copy and paste from them, you can play them back, you can print them out. But most usefully, you can actually compare them with each other. And you can compare not only two versions of the same score, but also two totally separate score files if you need to, so if you're exchanging a file with somebody else. And the, uh, the differences between those two versions of those two scores are shown visually in the score by coloured highlighting. So things that have been added get to show up in green, things that have been changed show up in orange and so on. Um, and you can also export a Word file that lists all of those differences so that you can use it as a proofreading aid or even as the basis for a commentary if you're submitting uh, coursework or something like that. Brilliant. Well, uh, Sibelius 6 is out now and we'll be sub- testing it to destruction in the usual sound on sound manner as soon as we can. Daniel, thanks very much. Thanks, Sam. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Normally when we do the podcast, we include a Q&A section. But because I'm sitting here sunning myself and having a good time rather than working, we're going to have to trawl through the SOS hard disk to find some questions that we've answered on a previous occasion. So let's roll the tape, or what passes for tape in these digital days. Sound advice. Jennifer Palmer from Nevada has just picked up a vintage tape machine, apparently. She wants to know how to make uh, those old-fashioned echo sounds. Okay, well, there's a lot of things you can do. Um, Before we even get onto the echo sounds, the tape recorder could be a really good thing to bounce the mixers off, because if you find that your mixers are sounding too clinical and too digital, rather than going down the analogue submixer route, you can just record them straight onto a good quality two-track at the highest speed that you've got, no noise reduction, watch your levels, and then play the thing back via some good converters, store it as a digital file, and you're going to end up with something that sounds just a little bit more magical and analogue. So if you're after vintage sounds, that's a good trick. When it comes to delay, you can always set your tape recorder to monitor the playback head. You can feed one of your aux sends into the tape recorder's input, put on a fresh reel of tape, and what you'll get is a delayed signal being played back, and you can feed that back via an aux return and add that as an old-fashioned echo. However, there are a lot more tricks that you can do to get vintage echo effects. Um, I'm sure that Hune has a couple. Uh, well, yeah, obviously there's, there's more plugins you can use to, to uh, emulate it, and there are some hardware devices that will do it too. Yeah, the plugins that emulate um, tape delays do so by introducing artificial wow and flutter, uh, the distortions that you get from tape, and some of the high-frequency loss. So some of them get very close indeed. But another trick I've found, which is really good fun, is to send your echo feed out into another room, feed it through a, a small guitar amplifier or, or a powered PA speaker, mic that up within the room, and then bring that back to your effects return and delay the thing using a plug-in delay, a straightforward delay. And what you'll get there is is a, a very, very organic kind of sound that's very hard to get using purely electronic means. And you can change the microphone or the mic position to change the character of the effect. It's a good idea. I was going to comment earlier when you mentioned about putting a brand new reel of tape on the machine to get the echo effect, that actually I think it works better if you use an old reel of tape because you get less top end that way and it just makes it sound more organic and interesting. But so the older the tape, really, the, the kind of more interesting the effect becomes. That's actually very true. The older the tape gets, the, the less top end and sometimes the tape stretches a little bit and the sound goes a little bit phasey. 
Uh, that's one of the factors actually emulated in some of the plugins I mean, with the universal audio replication of the Roland RE201 Space Echo. I think you've actually got two or three settings for how old the tape is. So you, can, you can model a new tape, a used tape, or one that's just about to fall apart at the splice. <laughs> Excellent. What can Jennifer do with tape loops? Can she make her own? Uh, some people do experiment with tape loops and tape recorders, but it's actually quite tricky because you have to um, improvise some sort of tape guide at the other end of the room. It's more for people like Robert Fripp and other pioneers who want really long delays. And now that we have a, an easy way to do that digitally, uh, or by a looper pedal, for example, uh, a lot of people don't do that. But the old echo trick that I said, just monitoring off the playback head, is really easy to set up. And it it does have a certain something that non-tape echoes don't have, so worth doing. If the delay time isn't what you want, then you can always add a bit of extra clean um, plug-in delay afterwards. And if it's too much, you can shift the track. So if you record the uh, echo onto a separate track, you can actually do quite a lot with it. You can also set up a feedback path within your software mixer to send some of the output back to the input and get the regenerating, recirculating delays that you would expect from a pedal. Yes, if you turn up the aux send on the return from the tape, then you'll get that very easily. Just don't turn it up too fast. Sound advice. Jed Atkins from Sheffield has uh, a very valid question which is, um, why do we need omni-mics when, in recording in a studio, we, we tend to want as much separation as we can get? Surely a cardioid mic is the best thing for all possible jobs. Going back into the, into the histories of, of microphone design, the omni-microphone was one of the first that was developed because it's a very simple construction. It's effectively just a sealed box, a bit like a snare drum, with a diaphragm on the front. It's very easy to make, um, and you get very good quality. There's usually an octave or an octave and a half of extra bass extension compared to any kind of cardioid microphone. Um, and you don't get any of the funny face shifty effects, the face shifts that you get inherently in most cardioid microphones. So they have a, a sound character which is quite different and tends to sound more natural. The obvious disadvantage is, of course, that you don't get any directionality with the thing. Um, and that's the reason why the cardioid mic became so popular was because you can use it to exclude spill and unwanted sounds from other directions more easily. But then you have to ask yourself, do we need to exclude uh, a spill? In many cases, spill is actually what helps to join everything together. And again, if you go back to a lot of the recordings in the 50s and 60s, they had a lot of spill, but they sounded very um, joined up, very homogenous kind of, of mixes. Yeah, this is true, because uh, although you do get more spill, the spill is inherently more accurate. The spill that you get into a cardioid mic, it comes in off-axis, and these things have a pretty dreadful off-axis response. So it's not going to sound at all focused the spill that you get will actually be quite muddy and phasey. The other point to bear in mind is that you can still get quite a lot of separation using omnis if you just move them a little closer. And because they don't suffer from the proximity effect, you don't have to be too wary of this. So if, if you halve the microphone distance, you're probably back to the same kind of ballpark spillage as you would be with a cardioid. Yes, and you can use things like um, the SE reflection filter to give you mechanical directionality instead of electrical directionality, if you like. This is hanging a screen of some kind behind the mic. So yes, absolutely. Little commercial reflection filters do work, and for my own recordings I quite often do that, especially for acoustic guitar where I find the mic placement is less critical with an Omni. And you can also just hang up a few blankets and things behind it to try and soak up reflections coming from areas that you don't want the mic to listen to. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people have a fear of omnidirectional microphones because they're worried that it's going to pick up everything. But that's not really the case. You can use distance, as we said, you can use mechanical screening and so on. Um, to give you better isolation and you just get a more natural sound. Mm. 
I think a point worth making is that if you do need an Omni mic for a specific job, it's better to buy a small diaphragm dedicated Omni mic than a multi-pattern mic, because with a multi-pattern mic, they actually fake, if you like, the Omni-pattern by combining probably two cardioids, and you get some side effects, and the polar response isn't nearly as even as you get from a true single diaphragm Omni. Mm, very true. Sound advice. Peter from Wakefield asks, what are the main problems people have when they're mixing? From my perspective, a lot of the problems actually start before people start mixing. Um, they're not capturing the right sounds at source and maybe not arranging the music correctly so that there's either too much in it or too little or the wrong combination of sounds. A really good producer will make sure that those things are right before the mix stage. When it does get to the mix stage, then I, I think over-processing is actually one of the big problems. What, what have you seen here? Yeah, I agree with you. Getting getting the right material in decent quality in the first place is the important thing. A lot of people, particularly in, in the day and age of the modern computer, will put off making decisions in the theory that they can fix it in the computer later. And often you can't, or if you can, it's going to take you a very long time. So it's much better to get the microphones in the right place, get the sound you want at source, and then you'll find mixing is a lot easier. The other problem I think a lot of people have is that they actually monitor too loud when they mix. The louder you monitor, apart from it tires your ears out and you, and you get fatigued very quickly, but it also tends to make uh, balancing errors much less obvious because you can still hear everything because it's so loud. If you try and do a mix at a much lower level, you'll find it's very much harder, but the end result is an awful lot better. That's true, and that's why uh, a lot of us go outside and check the mix from the next room because somehow the balance problems show up much more clearly that they way. They do, yeah. The other problem seems to be still that people uh, are trying to make everything rather brighter than it should be. I mean, if you listen to a well-produced record, it's not all bright and tinkly and in your face. You may have some bright cymbals, you might have a, a zingy acoustic guitar, but the majority of the material is fairly middly. Now, what happens when you try and make everything crystal clear and up front is that when you mix it, everything's crowding to get to the front of the sound stage and mm. nothing will sit at the back. Yeah, and that goes to doing EQ as well. It's much better to try and do EQ when you've got the mix up roughly right and then you can fine-tune it rather than go through each individual instrument on solo and tweak it to make it sound spectacular by itself. It'll never work in a mix that way. That's very true. I mean, if you're not really confident in throwing up all the faders and then trying to balance everything, the other good way to work on a conventional track is to bring up the drums and the bass and get the rhythm section happening. But keep in mind that once the other parts are in, you may have to go back and tweak the EQ and the balance on those a little bit. But kind of build it up from the bass mm. and, and the drums and see what's, what's the most important part. I mean, after that, probably some rhythm instrument and the vocal. And then you can kind of slot in the keyboard parts and the uh, electric guitar parts. Try not to make the pad keyboard parts too bright because then they'll be fighting for space with the guitars. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. In the June issue of Sound on Sound, I reviewed the Audio Engineering Associates A440 ribbon microphone, and this has got to be the Rolls Royce of ribbon microphones, really. There's no doubt that ribbon microphones are much more popular these days, and it's a combination of things, partly because of the low-cost Far Eastern production, of course, but also because the technology's moved on, the ribbons are more robust, the magnets are stronger, you get better output, and of course preamplifiers are much quieter these days than perhaps they once were. Ribbon microphones always have a very smooth top end, and it's because the diaphragm resonates at a very low frequency, whereas in a capacitor microphone the diaphragm resonates at a very high frequency, and this has an effect on the audio character of the output. The original RCA44 was introduced back in 1936, and it's been in use ever since, along with its stable mates like the 77 and the KU3, and they're still used almost daily in orchestral studios and film scoring studios around the world. AEA got into uh, repairing and uh, refurbishing these microphones, and then they started developing their own models, and they brought out things like the R44C and the R44CX, which has a higher output. The big problem with ribbon microphones is they have a very low output. 
Uh, typically, you're talking about 2 millivolts per pascal or something like that. And even the R44CX, the high output model, only puts out a feeble 5 millivolts per pascal. So it's pretty low-level stuff, and you need a lot of gain in your preamplifier, especially if you're going to use these microphones as distant mics for orchestral recording. What AEA have done with the um, the new A440 is basically to build a preamplifier stage into the microphone itself. And, of course, there's plenty of space in there for it. Um, and what they've done is they've used the same technology that they've already proven in their TRT preamplifiers. It's a JFET amplifier designed by Fred Forsell, and they've basically used a stage of that inside the AEA 440 just to boost the output level, and now you get something like 30 millivolts per pascal instead of just two or three. So a very strong output microphone. Just to give you an idea, 30 millivolts per pascal is hotter than most hot capacitor microphones that are typically around sort of 20 or 25 millivolts per pascal. So this is a seriously high output mic now. But even though there's all that gain in there, it's still incredibly quiet. The self-noise figure is still only 6 dBA, which is as quiet as any of the best capacitor microphones you're ever going to find. So what about the sound of the 440? Well, as you'd expect, it's very big. It sounds bigger than life, especially if you're using it close. It's got a huge bass tip-up. But of course, it's intended to be used in more distant placements for orchestral recording and for instrument recording and that kind of thing. And in those sort of applications, it just gives this fabulously smooth, big, very involving sound. It's a true figure of eight, so the side nulls are incredibly deep. You can really just move around to the side of it and disappear completely. It's that kind of precise. And it's just a fabulous sounding mic. When I did the original review of, of AEA's R44s, I think I related them to a Bentley. Uh, and if you needed to go and justify it to your accountant, that was the kind of line to take. Well, as I've said in the review of this one, this is like a Bentley with a supercharger. It is just absolutely super. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. The London International Music Show, or Limbs to You and Me, is upon us, and it's taking place between the 11th and the 14th of June at XL in Docklands. SOS are the media sponsors of the Sound Recording Technology part of the show, and we'll be putting together a free seminar programme where, amongst other things, you can come and pose your studio questions in person. Also at the show, you'll find gear from the biggest brands in the business, and this year there's a retail element to the show as well, so you can grab a bargain while you're down there. On the Limbs Live stage, Steve Vai, Nico McBrain, Jan Ackerman and Albert Lee will all be making appearances and there's a special Steve Vai Masterclass taking place as well. So, just to recap, that's the London International Music Show on the 11th to the 14th of June 2009 at XL in London's Docklands. Head to londoninternationalmusicshow.com for more information and to book your tickets. If you're listening from the USA's Midwest, a trip to London might be a bit much to ask, even if you are guaranteed a head-to-head with Paul and Hugh. So, why not plan to visit the Sweetwater Gear Fest, which is taking place on the 26th and 27th of June. Like the Limbs Show, you'll have the chance to get your hands on the latest gear and take advantage of special offers only available at the event. There will also be a flea market and a guitar restringing service, so bring your guitars along. Gear Fest is free and takes place at Sweetwater's headquarters in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Visit sweetwater.com to register. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Well, we've come to the end of the SOS podcast and it's been fun, so goodbye from me in Turkey. I'm going back to the bar. And goodbye from me in Worcestershire. And it's farewell from Cambridge. See you next time. Yeah.